1: Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet.
0: Welcome back for episode 37 of The Full Ratchet. Today, we welcome Leo Polovets of Sousa Ventures to talk the algorithm for valuation and fundraise amount. out. Leo's a great guy. He's been incredibly helpful to me, and we've got a fantastic interview with him today. We will be addressing questions, including... What are the three major steps in the algorithm for seed fundraise and valuation? What are the four main profiles that help determine the appropriate valuation? If founders are looking at a fundraise amount and price that cause too much dilution, what options do they have? And what is a most favored nations or MFN clause? Those questions and many more on today's episode. But before we kick off, I wanted to cover the answer to the brain teaser from last week. Recall that the brain teaser was a comparison of two LP investments. One was an LP investment of $100,000 in a venture fund. Another was an LP investment of $100,000 in a syndicate. If you'd like more details on the specifics of the question, please have a listen to last week's episode or head over to fullratchet.net and you can see all the details of the question. As some of you have pointed out, there are a number of assumptions that have to be made things such as the length of the fund, uh, most are 10 years. Uh, some people pointed out that management fees and carries can often be higher for small funds, higher than the 2 and 20 structure. And of course, on the syndicate side, you need some details on initiation fees and things of that nature. So some assumptions have to be made in order to calculate this, but regardless of where those values came in, the answer in my models did not change. And with all the assumptions considered, I ended up with a return multiple around 4x for the syndicate and a return multiple around 3.6x with the venture fund. So not significantly different, but the correct answer was the syndicate for this brain teaser. The key drawback of the syndicate versus the venture fund is that a carry is paid on each deal. So each deal in the 10 that was proposed will pay out a carry, assuming they are profitable. The benefit on the venture fund side here is that the blended profit across all 10 investments pays a carry. Because of that, the losers will offset the winners on the venture fund side, and so the venture fund will take less of a carry percentage for themselves, and they will pay out a higher amount of profit to their LPs. Whereas the disadvantage on the venture side is the management fees. Management fees are typically paid out every year to cover the venture fund's costs for the duration of the fund, so 10 years. While there are a number of different ways that these are handled over the course of the fund, that money is carved out from the investable capital. So because there's less capital to invest in each of the 10 companies, the amount that they can return is also less. So in summary, the venture fund has a more attractive profile when carry is considered, whereas the syndicate has a more attractive profile when management fees are considered. And when you run the numbers on the two, ultimately the economics for the syndicate are slightly better than the venture fund. I have also been speaking with some of the folks over at List, and Naval and Nivi have put together a page on their site that does this comparison of the two. So if you're looking to learn more on the differences between each and how they compare, I will include a link in the show notes to that Angel List page. Okay, as far as who won the free ticket to pre-money, so out of the few hundred entries, the winner of the ticket to pre-money is Kunal Agarwal. Kunal, I look forward to seeing you there at the conference. And if you didn't win the pre-money ticket, but you'd still like to attend, just go to premoney.co and use the discount code full Ratchet. That's one word with no spaces. And I wanted to say a quick thank you to those of you who have reached out recently via email. I've received more high quality pitch decks from startup founders and fellow angels in the recent past than I've seen in a while. Just in the past week, I've been fortunate to talk with angels in Austin, Boston, Philly, Nashville, uh, Santa Barbara, and even had dinner with six angels right here in Chicago that I had not previously met. So if connectivity is the key to building up this ecosystem, I Can't say enough about those of you that are making an effort, growing the community, and helping great startups get funded. Okay, let's get into the episode today. Here is the interview on the algorithm for fundraise amount and valuation. Today, we have Leo Polovets on the program. Leo is in Mountain View, California. He's a general partner at Sousa Ventures and also does some angel investing on the side. Leo, thanks so much for the time today.
1: Thanks a lot for having me, Nick.
0: So, Leo, can you start us off with your background and how you got involved in venture?
1: Sure. So, I was actually a software engineer for about a decade. After I graduated college, I was fortunate enough to be one of the early employees at LinkedIn. I worked on one of the co internships and so I joined when the company was about a dozen people. So, I was there for a couple of years. After that, I went to Google and worked there for three years on uh, payment fraud detection. And, And then I worked at a startup in LA called Factual where I did a lot of data processing work. And about two and a half years ago, I left Factual and was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. I was actually kind of thinking of starting a company, but realized that I didn't really know much about really early stage companies uh, in terms of I'd never been involved in fundraising. I'd never built a product from scratch. I'd never recruited a team from scratch. And so I was trying to find ways to learn about that stuff. And right around the time that I left my job, one of my friends actually came to me and said, Hey, I have the seed fund that I'm starting with a couple of other people, and we're looking for somebody more in the technical engineering side. Do you want to try it out? And that seemed like a really great way for me to learn about the kind of the one to 10 person stage of a company. So I tried it out and I really liked it. And so I've been doing that for about two and a half years now.
0: Did you make some angel placements before you launched into the fund itself, or did you start with the venture fund?
1: I was just starting to. So I think that was right around the top time when the Ventures Club came out a few months before I started at the fund. Also, I went to a couple of like angel group meetings where I lived, but I was just starting out when I joined the fund.
0: Can you give us a little info on how that fundraise process went? Clearly, you found some co-general partners, and then did you commence sort of a traditional raise, or did you have certain LPs in mind before you decided to proceed with the launch? I
1: guess it's kind of a long story, but basically, we knew that first-time fund wouldn't be easy one of our four partners had a lot of angel investing experience, but we wanted to make sure that the rest of us could work together, could make good decisions together. And we actually started investing as a syndicate. And we did that for about 8-9 months. I made like 6 or 7 investments where we just basically, as an informal syndicate, we'd each write like a small piece of each check. And then I think once we saw that we were making good decisions, we could work together well, we liked it, we started fundraising. And one of my partners had pretty good connections among like family offices and multi-individuals. So the fundraising process wasn't super short, just because being a first-time fund is hard. But we managed to close $25 million in about seven, eight months or so.
0: Wow. Was that mostly existing network then? Or were you going out to folks that you hadn't interacted with in the past?
1: It was both. I mean, I think maybe the first third or so was existing network. And then after that, we started getting connections to people we'd never met before. And, you know, we kind of got connections from all over the place, sometimes through our friends, sometimes through founders we were working with. It's a lot probably like raising money for a startup where you just kind of hustle and try to get money where you can get it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right. Okay. So today's topic is the algorithm for seed fundraising. You've written about this in the past and have outlined three major steps. The first is the amount of the raise. And you cite revenues, expenses, and timing as key considerations for determining raise amount. Can you walk us through this step and how an investor can quickly evaluate the numbers and know if the startup is raising the appropriate amount?
1: Sure. So I think a lot of this basically comes down to pattern matching and experience. And it's largely based on deals in your area and you kind of know what things go for, then basically calibrating off of that. And if you haven't seen a lot of deals, you know maybe looking at AngelList and seeing what comparable companies are raising at in your area. And I kind of see it as several stages. The first stage, for startups, is pre-product. So sometimes people try to raise with just an idea and a deck. And at least for Silicon Valley, usually those valuations tend to be a bit lower, maybe three to six million. I realize that maybe in other locations they'd be a lot lower than that, but that's kind of the, the going rate in Silicon Valley. And then the valuations kind of progress as the as the company progresses. So as you go from pre product to like a working prototype to starting to make money and finding product market fit, the valuations kind of go up a couple of million with each step. So if you're pre product, it might be like four million or five million. If you have a beta version, maybe like a few thousand dollars in revenue every month, maybe more. that's more like six or seven. If you're making like 30 grand a month, maybe that's closer to like a $10 million valuation. And then above that, you start getting into series A territory when somebody crosses about a million in revenues.
0: As part of step one, you've talked about the lists of expenses involved in a startup's maturation. You've cited salaries, office space, infrastructure, marketing, PR, accounting, et cetera. In terms of time frame that the raise should last, how would you recommend structuring the amount that's raised and think about the amount of timing and runway that that raise provides?
1: I think that the magic number I usually try to recommend to people is to try to get 18 months or more runway. The reason for that is people have these milestones. If I had a million dollars, I could do this in 12 months and then I'd be ready to raise in 12 months. And unfortunately, it doesn't work like that because fundraising for a Series A might take three, four, five, six months. And so if you hit your milestones, but you hit them right as you run out of money, that's basically it. You can't wait six months after that to go raise your next round. So the reason I tell people to try to raise about 18 months of runway or more is that if you take off four to six months for fundraising at the end, that still gives you 12, 14 months to hit some good milestones. And if you're raising nine months of runway, that means you only have five months to hit some milestones before you need to raise your next round. And five months might not be enough time, especially if it turns out you have to pivot a little bit or change your business model a little bit. So I think 18 months is a great goal to shoot for.
0: So if I were the startup founder, basically, I'm looking to take my top line numbers, maybe with a conservative hedge and uh, look at my cost side and figure out what the cash flow looks like then for that 18-month period?
1: Yeah, exactly. I think it's probably good to just assume that if you have revenue, it'll for whatever reason, maybe it stops growing next month. So let's say your revenue stays pretty even, and then you have some hiring plan, right? Like you probably have some goals of, I want to add two engineers, and I want to build this feature, and then after that, three months later, I'll need a salesperson. And so you start budgeting for those people and try to think about, okay, if I hire them in one-four, And then I'm paying them for the next year, year and a half until my next round. How much money does that take per person? And then you add in a little bit for office space and maybe Amazon for infrastructure and add a little bit of buffer. And that's kind of your good 18-month number.
0: Okay. So that covers step one, which you tee up as variable X in this algorithm. Step two is variable Y, which is the valuation and the price. But before we jump right into the valuation, you talk about the length of time to raise. Can you first illustrate how much time startups should be spending on their fundraise process and why?
1: This is just my personal opinion, but I think targeting about two months or so is a good goal to shoot for. Sometimes really hard startups will raise in a week or two. I think usually that means one of two things, although not always, but either means you really underpriced your round and so investors kind of Basically, we're tripping over themselves to invest at a bargain. Or it means that maybe you got some good investors, but in a week or two, like there's only so well you could know people. And I think it's really valuable if you're going to be working with somebody for the next three or five or 10 years to try to get to know them a little bit, have more than one meeting, have like three or four meetings, meet all the partners, make sure it's a fund or a VC or an angel investor that you want to work with. So I think. If you can close money really quickly, in some ways, that's great. But in other ways, you know, maybe you're missing out on better investors or you could have had a slightly higher price or something like that. And on the flip side, I think if it's taking you five or eight or 12 months to raise, that means basically the opposite. Either you're overpricing it or maybe your vision isn't compelling enough or you don't have the right founding team. You need like a better technical co-founder or a better business co-founder. And so I think if it's taking that long to raise that should be a time to step back and really think about why aren't people investing and to try to address those issues. Maybe that means raising a little bit less on a lower valuation. Maybe it means trying to find an additional co-founder. I think two months is sort of a good time where it shows that you found a price that people like, but they don't fall over themselves trying to invest in. But it's also not so long that it just distracts you from building a company for six months.
0: When we're considering very early seed stage companies and the need to go after angel capital, for instance, through angel groups, often it can take months to get on their calendar in terms of their cycles, right? If an angel group meets every couple months, maybe you contacted them at the wrong time or at a time that falls between those meetings. And then they may have you come into to two different evaluation sessions. So maybe you come in for a small Angel group meeting with 10 members and then they invite you to the broader group. Considering some of these early stage capital sources can sometimes take eight to 12 to 16 weeks. How do you advise that startups and founders should think about this time to raise with sources that may not be able to turn in two months?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think this is where my advice probably applies a little bit more to in really large markets like Silicon Valley or New York, at least from what I've seen here, I think angel groups tend to be a little bit less active and it tends to be their individual angels or VCs. And both of those, at least at seed stage, usually move pretty quickly. So, I mean, obviously, if the main source of funding that you're talking to operates on a 12-week schedule, then I guess you're on a 12-week schedule. And that's okay. I think that the reason I picked two months as a milestone is I intended it to be more it sound a good, fair market-clearing price. Yep. And so it's kind of like if in your market four months is a reasonable time for fundraising, then target four months because if it's taking you 12 months, that still indicates some kind of problem with what you're doing. Also, a lot of times there are individual angels in the area. Sometimes you can just email them cold if you have a, a really nice personalized message and they'll reply. And same thing with VCs. So I think that could be a, another channel too. I actually, one of the fundraising strategies I really like is to start with angels because a lot of times, at least in Silicon Valley, individual angels, they'll be willing to write small checks without too much diligence. If they like a founder, they like a company, they like a vision. And a lot of times that's a great way to build momentum, but then also those angel investors can then introduce you to other angels, other VCs, maybe angel groups. So that could be a good way to kind of get the momentum rolling and get a little bit of money in the bank early on.
0: Right, yeah. Sometimes you see these founders that are raising for 12 months or 18 months on end and kind of have to scratch your head and think, is this a fundable company or is your price way out of market for what you're proposing or the traction that you have? So certainly the two-month raise as a target, I think, is a good one. And if you can close it in that amount of time, then the market has spoken that you're probably in the right range.
1: Yeah. And I definitely mean it as kind of a rough guideline rather than, you know, it should be two months exactly. So if it's three or four and a half that's okay. If it's like nine, that's probably a you know an issue.
0: The other piece of the algorithm, uh, variable Y, is related to price and valuation. So you touched on this before, but can you highlight the four profiles that help determine the appropriate valuation range and what those ranges are?
1: Sure. So I think, and again, these are Silicon Valley numbers and they're just guidelines and there are exceptions to any of these, but there's pre-product where you either haven't started working yet or you just started those valuations might be in the three to six million dollar range. There's kind of you have a product beta, maybe you launched it, you have a tiny bit of revenue. I look a lot at SaaS companies, and so a lot of times they might have 1k or 10k or 15k in monthly revenue, and those tend to go for maybe six to nine million dollar ARR. Or sorry, six to nine million dollar valuations. Kind of the higher the annual run rate, the higher the valuations tend to go. Yep. You know, as you get closer and closer to repeatable sales process. Maybe you're making 25, 50, 75k per month. Those valuations tend to slide into like the high single digits, kind of low double digits. So maybe seven million, nine million, twelve million valuation. And then finally, once you have a repeatable sales model, you're basically ready to just raise your Series A, and then your valuation might be like 13 million, 15
0: million, or more. The third step has to do with performing a sanity check on the numbers directionally, what should be the relationship between raise amount and price, this X variable and this Y variable?
1: Yeah, so I think you know targeting about 20% dilution makes a lot of sense. And a little bit lower, a little bit higher is fine, like if you're at 15% or 25%. So I would say generally, Y, the valuation, is like pre-money valuations. It might be three to five times X, which is the amount raised. So again, you're getting like diluted somewhere between a sixth and a quarter. And that's a pretty good range. If you're doing less than 15% dilution, it probably means you're not raising enough. Not always, but probably. And at seed stage, cushion is so important just because before somebody finds product market fit, you really want the runway to be able to experiment a little bit to figure out what did you guess right? What did you guess wrong about the market? If you're getting 12% dilution, but you can raise another 500K and make it 18%, that 500K is probably worth it. And on the flip side, I think once you start getting over 25% dilution, it starts to make the company a little bit less viable long term. Just because if you give up, let's say, like 35% in your seed round, and then maybe you need a bridge and you sell another 15 you know, now you've basically sold half the company and you haven't even gotten to a Series A. Yep. And so I think that starts hurting you when you start going out to raise a Series A.
0: So just general numbers, rule of thumb, you said 4X to 6X. So if we call it 5X and maybe you're doing an early seed at 500K, you're looking at a $2.5 million valuation and, and that means you're directionally in the right range? Exactly. Great. So you talked about dilution and selling more than this 20%. So if that amount is significantly more than 20%, what are some of the options that are available to proceed with a raise without selling too much equity?
1: Yeah, so it depends on why you're able to raise the money. Like, is it that your valuation's too high, or is it that you know your valuation's reasonable but you can't seem to convert investors to invest? So the source of the problem matters, but in general, self-funding or taking less salary is one option, although it's it's a hard option, especially if you have other obligations like family. Another option is to try to raise a little bit less at a kind of a more palatable dilution amount and then kind of shrink your goals a little bit so that instead of aiming for a series A, maybe you aim for a bridge round. So if you need a million and a half, but the market's only going to give you a two and a half million dollar valuation, maybe you raise 500K, use that to progress for six or nine months and then start raise like a bridge round at a higher valuation. You can also make your plan less conservative if that's possible. So if you're trying to raise a million and a half and you think that would put you in a great place for an A, maybe you can raise a million or a million and a quarter and still have a good shot at a good A round. So maybe your plans are tweakable. I guess the last option is if you have to, you can always take more dilution. It's a risk, but having money in the banks better than just shutting down.
0: I guess trash and speaks, right? Absolutely. If you can't get what you're asking for at the appropriate valuation, then raise a bit less, get some more traction, and then go back to the market?
1: Yeah, to a large extent, valuation is basically traction plus how many risks you've removed from investors' eyes. So you're trying to de-risk, are the founders good? Can they sell? Can they build this product? Does the market want this product? And so every single one of those boxes that you can check should be able to bump your valuation up a little And so if you can check one of those boxes off in a couple of months, maybe it's good to wait a couple of months or try to just raise a little bit and then raise more in a couple of months.
0: We've talked a couple of times on the show about the nature of these rolling fundraisers now and how uh, seed seems to be split up into different tranches with people raising at different valuations over time and maybe smaller chunks of capital coming in. Are you seeing this as well in the Bay Area and is it related to this very issue?
1: Yeah, I think it's partly based on sometimes people can't get the valuation they want. And so they'll raise a little bit at a low valuation. And then as they make progress, they keep bumping it up and up. The other situation I see it in is when a round is basically very hot. And so maybe somebody aims to raise $2 million, and they start closing it so quickly, they realize, hey, maybe I can just close a million on six and raise the next batch at eight or nine or 10. So I've seen that as well.
0: Got it. There are a couple of caveats that you mention. One we've talked about in the past, many angels have advocated for using tranches and these rolling clothes to incentivize angels to act. You've advised against this. What's your message here?
1: There are a couple of things I don't like about this, and it's just a personal opinion. I don't think it's a part of the sure Sure. I think one is it adds a lot of complexity. It creates weird incentives because if two people got in one got in at four million and one got in at eight. Then, for example, maybe one is really happy if you get acquired at seven, and the other one would try to block it. And if everyone just got in at four or five, like you don't run into that issue. Another thing that people often miss is that the dilution they save is usually pretty minor. So, as an example, somebody might raise a million and a half at a five million pre, or they could raise 500k at four million, 500k at seven million, 500k at ten million. It sounds like the second approach is a lot better because you're kind of raising most of your money at seven and 10, but you're actually only saving like half a percent of dilution if you do the math. One and a half on five is like 23%. The other approach is 22 and a half percent. And so it's a lot of paperwork. It's a lot of making some investors feel slighted. It's a lot of legal complexity and all of that for drawing the process out and saving half a percent, which I think in most cases is not worth it. And I think finally, if you do a trunched round, the higher your final valuation in that round, the higher your expectations for your next round. So if you raise a million and a half on five, if things don't go great, maybe you can go raise it eight or nine in a year. And if you do it in tranches and your last 500K was at, say, a $10 million valuation, you have to get a lot further on the same money to do a bridge after a $10 million valuation. Sure. So instead of getting to eight or nine million, maybe you have to get to like 18 and that's a lot harder. That's basically series A territory.
0: So I guess the big difference between the multiple seed rounds before that we talked about and more of this tranched approach is that the situation before involves significant traction increases over time that merit a higher valuation. Whereas the rolling tranches toward a seed is more related to can you raise the capital and then if you're raising the capital as opposed to acquiring traction and progress with the business itself, then you're trying to get more capital in.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a great way to think about it, that if your valuation is going up because you're hitting milestones, then everyone's very happy with that. And people realize that before you had 10 risks and you were at 5 million, and now you eliminated two of those risks, and now you're raising at 8 million, that makes a lot of sense. What's harder for investors is if you're raising at five million and then now you're investing at eight million, and your reason is because it's a week later. I think that can also sometimes be hard for professional VCs because they at some point have to report to their limited partners, and they have to explain, hey, this other fund got in last week at five, and we got in at eight, and the only reason we got in at eight is because we came late, but the company is not actually further along. And so I know a lot of funds would kind of pass just because they want to avoid that issue.
0: There are some common rights that investors ask for during a seed financing. You mentioned pro rata, board seats, and most favored nations. Can you take a minute to describe what MFN is and why it's so important for early stage investors?
1: Sure. It's actually the most important for angels, although it's great for everyone. But MFN basically says that if another investor gets in at better terms in this round, you get upgraded to those terms if you have an MFN clause, and so that's really nice for angels because I think sometimes you can have this fear that hey maybe I'm going to put in 25k at a five million dollar valuation, and then some VC fund comes in, they have lots of bargaining power, they put in a lot of money at like a three or four million dollar valuation, and I invested at five, and that kind of sucks. And so the MFN clause basically protects you from that, so that If somebody does get better turns, like if that VC invested a four cap, your investment automatically gets upgraded to that.
0: So will you put a time consideration as well as an amount consideration on that MFN clause so that if you raise over the next, let's say, six months, anything between these two values, then you do inherit the best terms? Because clearly your MFN clause cannot sustain perpetually as the startup. Proceeds through subsequent series.
1: To be honest, one of my partners handles most of the legal docs, so I'm okay. <laughs> I'm less familiar with the specific docs, but I think usually there is a time limit. But it's usually limited to like the current round, and so if there's a kind of a next financing event triggered, like the MFN does not apply to that.
0: At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta. And there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers, constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. In this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to packwest.com to learn more. So when you guys are doing your diligence, let's say you found a startup, you like the team, you like the, the market, you like the idea. When you're going through the diligence phase Are you taking a step back and applying this strategic algorithm as you've laid it out to make sure that the fundraise amount is actually appropriate for the 18-month runway and the valuation makes sense based on directional progress, things of this nature?
1: Yeah, absolutely. This is a framework. And so if you don't know where to start, this is a good place to start. But these aren't hard and fast rules, so there are exceptions. And so a lot of times we do see exceptions, but then this framework is good because it helps us really think about if this company should be at 8 million and they're raising at 12, makes them exceptional enough that we think 12 is justified. And so we tend to look at it from that perspective of we have kind of an anchor for here's what we think the startup should be raising at. They're within like 5, 10%, doesn't matter. If they're 40% away or they're twice, or we think that's when we start really digging in and trying to understand. Is there something exceptional that makes them worth twice as much? Or is it kind of, well, the startup market's hot and they're able to raise a twice fair valuation and that's what they're doing. And in those cases, if it's more of the market being hot, we'll usually pass because, you know, we want to get it at a fair price.
0: Yeah, speaking of the market being hot, there's been kind of a lot of chatter about are we in a bubble? Are we in a boom? What's the nature of the market, escalating valuations, lots of private market activity in the late stages? Do you have any thoughts on venture on the whole and if we're in a bubble or a boom or something else?
1: I don't have strong opinions on this, but I would say that there's definitely some overpricing in places. I don't think it's bubble territory where we'll hit 80% corrections or something in the near future. I mostly look at things in seed stage and series A, especially seed stage. And the main challenge I've seen, especially in Silicon Valley, is There are a lot of early employees from companies like Facebook, Twitter, uh, in my case, LinkedIn, where they got to cash out a little bit from being early. And then now they're looking for things to do. They start angel investing because it's a really fun, rewarding activity. And a lot of times it ends up driving prices up a little bit. So I met with a lot of companies, for example, where I think they should be raising at six. They're raising at nine. And when I asked, why are you raising at nine? This feels like it should be worth six. They basically use angel interest as a proxy for explaining why nine is a fair price. But I think a lot of times the people that are investing as angels, their motivation is not just money. So they tend to be a little price insensitive. And so you get this creep from somebody instead of raising at five, raising at seven, or instead of raising at seven, they're raising at 10. That's not bubble territory. It's not like they should be raising at two and they're raising at 10. I definitely think that there's a bit of a premium paid in a lot of companies these days.
0: So do you use a combination of comps and valuations calculated based on traction and pedigree and or do you kind of focus on one valuation methodology over another?
1: A lot of this is it's kind of internalized, right? You know, my partners and I, we probably look at about 100 companies per month, at least briefly, and probably dig into, I don't know, like 30, 40 of those. And so at any given moment, it's pretty easy to just think about the last month or two and say, well, we saw these 60 companies pretty deeply. And based on how those are priced, this one should be priced at this amount. And they differ greatly from that. Let's figure out why. We're kind of using this algorithm. It's more implicit than explicit because the algorithm is based on the comps we've seen. And because of the comps are in a memory, we can just think about the comps, too.
0: So, Leo, what are you currently most focused on?
1: I spend about half of my time looking at new companies, doing research on companies. You know, we're we're diligencing right now. I spend about a third of my time working with existing portfolio companies. For me, that's the most fun piece because I really like digging in with founders when I have a chance, when I feel like I could actually be helpful. And and then I spend the rest of my time kind of doing a lot of random thinking about what's going on in the industry, uh, writing blog posts. We're starting to think about when we should raise fund, too, with SUSE. so... The rest of my time kind of goes into those buckets.
0: If we could cover any topic in venture, what do you think should be addressed and who would you like to hear speak about it?
1: One thing that's really interesting is that as an investor, I get a really good cross-section of what founders are doing, what they're doing on the fundraising side, what they're doing on the company building side. I have very little transparency on what other investors do. Even with the investors I'm friends with, I don't always know like what kind of diligence questions do they ask or what do they do after they invest in the company. And I'd actually kind of be interested in having almost a panel of founders talk about, for the founders that have had 10 or 20 or 50 investors over time, what kind of behaviors they like and dislike, what kind of help they value and don't value. That's the kind of thing where it's it's flipped for them, where I get a great cross-section of founders that I can observe, but very few investors. And for them, it's the opposite. They know founders, they probably don't see like those founders' weekly updates or... They don't know too much about the fundraising strategy, but they see a lot about what investors do. And I think it'd be really great to see investors from a founder's perspective, and because I think that would help everyone become better investors on the investing side.
0: Certainly hear from a lot of folks on a weekly basis about getting more insights into the process and the approach of other investors. So you're not alone in that, Leo. But what is the best way for listeners to connect with you?
1: I have a blog. It's uh, codingvc.com. My email address is leo at susaventures.com. And there's got links to like my LinkedIn, Twitter, and all of that. So that's yeah, probably the best place to go.
0: Well, Leo, I've been a huge fan of your writing for quite some time over at Coding VC and uh, especially your recent Value of Data series. So thanks so much for the time today. I really appreciate your insights.
1: Thanks a lot, Nick. I really enjoyed chatting with you.
0: Awesome to have Leo on the program to talk about his algorithm. Let's recap some of the key takeaways here. Number one is the three steps to the algorithm. Step one is how much do you need? Step two is what is your target valuation? And step three is performing a sanity check. So for step one, Leo advocates to start with an 18-month duration. Then the founders must calculate all of the expense-side costs, Salaries, office space, infrastructure, utilities, marketing, PR, legal, accounting, etc. And he also suggests to assume that revenue will be flat over that 18-month horizon, regardless of one's intent to grow. Once all the costs are aggregated, he asks a startup to add a 10-20% to cushion, and this number over the 18-month duration is the suggested fundraise amount or variable X. For step two, Leo first thinks about the four stages that a product fits into, and remember that he is often looking at B2B SaaS startups in the Bay Area, and the definitions of seed versus A versus B have become a little fuzzy and are different depending on who you ask. Here are Leo's four stages. Number one is pre-product or alpha product with a 3 to $6 million valuation, Number two is a beta product with some pilot customers and revenue might be 1k to 20k a month. This is at a six million or seven million dollar valuation. Number three is mature product with established revenues, but sales are still high touch and maybe in the 25k to 100k range. This is approximately a $10 million valuation. And finally, number four is a mature company with a repeatable sales model, with 100 k plus in monthly revenue. This is Series A territory, or $15 million plus. And remember that this step includes Leo's point about raising a round within two months. If significantly faster than that, then the startup is probably underpriced. If significantly longer, it's either overpriced, or there may be fundamental issues preventing the startup from getting funded. Finally, step three for Leo is the sanity check. In steps one and two, we calculated the raise amount, X, and the price or valuation, Y. He now likes to assess if they make sense. So Y should be priced about four to six times variable X. If that's the case, then it's appropriate to proceed with the fundraise. If Y is significantly more than four times variable X, then Leo suggests coming up with a more aggressive roadmap since more money could be raised with acceptable dilution. And if Y is less than 4X, then the founders are probably taking too much dilution. Leo believes that it rarely makes sense to give up more than 20% of the company at the seed stage. His rule of thumb here is that dilution should be between 1 and 1 or 17% to 25% of equity. And this leads us to takeaway number two, which is options if you can't raise enough money at the preferred valuation. First, let's recap that investors are trying to de-risk their investment by finding out, are the founders good? Can they sell the product? Can they build the product? And does the market want the product? So if the founder is unable to raise the amount that they want or raise at the price that they prefer, they must do what they can to address those factors and de-risk the investment. This includes self-funding or taking less salary, raise a little less and aim for a bridge round by achieving some near-term milestones, implement a less conservative plan, and finally, the founders can take more dilution. Okay, key takeaway number three is on most favored nations. Simply, most favored nations, MFN, protects early investors from getting worse terms than others. Remember that angels often get money in very early when risk is at the highest. If a VC or other investor comes in later and negotiates for better terms, the angel doesn't want to be stuck with a higher price or worse provisions. MFN guarantees that the early investor will get upgraded to the best terms within that round if better terms come in later on. While Leo doesn't handle the legal docs, his understanding of the way that this plays out is that there is a trigger tied to the MFN so that if a subsequent cash infusion sets off the trigger, I'm guessing it would be time-related or dollar amount of the raise, then it is considered a new round and the early investor does not inherit the new terms. However, if things are going well, then the terms will almost certainly be less favorable in a subsequent round than the previous, unless, of course, we're talking about a down round. While this may seem like a simple clause, it can have a great effect especially when individuals or small groups of angels do not have the bargaining power or deal experience of a venture capitalist. It's likely that the MFN clause will rarely be necessary. But in the case that it is, the riskiest capital should, at the least, be at par with the less risky capital. All right, let's wrap up with a quick tip of the week. And this week's tip is the rolling close gathers moss. In the past, we've talked about the benefits of the rolling close how a startup founder can incent angels to act by creating tranches of better terms if they invest by a certain date. While there are some benefits to this, today we talked about some significant drawbacks to the rolling close. The cited problems include, it creates a lot of complexity, it creates weird incentives for different investors. Upon exit, investors that got in at different valuations have much different motivations to sell the company versus continue on. It creates a lot of paperwork and complexity for what eventually amounts to a pretty minor difference in equity dilution. And it can increase the amount that needs to be raised later on. If the round was set and a fixed amount was raised, then there is a clear expectation of the milestones and target valuation for the next round. Whereas if you've raised in a rolling fashion with escalating valuations, when the Series A is eventually reached, the required valuation at that point may be twice or 1.5x the normal expectations. And finally, if you remember back to the episode with Joanne Wilson, we talked about stacked notes. Often in these rolling close scenarios, the result is a series of stacked notes. And the impact to the investor here is that the agreed upon cap in the note, is not what the note will convert at. Because the layered notes have a dilution effect on earlier cap amounts, the earliest investor will not convert at what was agreed, resulting in less equity. So this fundraise approach does present benefits to getting the money in, but there are some downstream drawbacks for investors. And while a rolling stone may not gather moss, a rolling close clearly does. That's it for this week. Give me a follow on Twitter or AngelList. And if you didn't win the ticket to PreMoney, the folks over at 500 Startups have been nice enough to provide a discount code, which not surprisingly is FullRatchet. So go to premoney.co to register and enter FullRatchet. That's one word with no spaces for a $100 discount. That's it for this week. Thank you for the listen, as always. Until next time, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for listening.